If you haven't already done so, I encourage you to turn in the Word of God to an epistle to 1 Peter chapter 1. And as well, we're going to read responsively this morning from question and answer 65 in the Heidelberg Catechism. You'll find this in the Thin Forms and Prayers book on page 226. 226. Now, if there are limited forms and prayers books around, you also find this in the back of the hymnal. And as you do so, I'll mention a few things to you. One is that this morning we come to the end of this segment of our time in the catechism. We're going to take a break over the summer. The catechism this year has been synced with Sunday school, so we'll return to it when we come back to Sunday school. It has been wonderful with the high schoolers for myself personally. I'm sure all the teachers can speak to their own experience, but to be working through these essential questions. Some of these questions that we look at in the sermons are, I trust, very familiar to some of you. And yet we still need to be edified by them, and we need to be sharpened so that we know how to give an account of our faith on these essential things. The book of Hebrews says that, in a sense, by this time you all ought to be teachers. We're not all formal teachers, but the milk of the word, the ABCs, the basic things, we should all aspire to be able to explain. And that's part of what being in a catechetical summary of the Bible helps us to do. Lord willing, in the fall, we'll pick up with the sacraments in question 65 you'll notice or rather lord's day 25 you'll notice that we're only dealing with one question this morning 65 we'll deal with the others when we come back specifically on the sacraments now last week maybe you weren't here we looked at the value the worth of good works very counterintuitive both to our flesh and to natural religion We believe and we confess that good works are worthless as they relate to establishing your righteousness before God, establishing your right to salvation. That comes only through faith, faith in Jesus Christ. But this morning, we deal with a different question. If salvation is by faith alone, where does faith come from? Why is it some people have faith? And how does it get there? What is God's means? I'll read the question, 65. Together, we will confess the answer. It is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits. Where then does that faith come from? The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and confirms it by the use of the holy sacraments. Now, this is what this church confesses. This is a faithful summary of the Bible as we understand it. And yet, I can imagine that there may be persons among us for whom, if you really start to think about it, this would be a jarring truth. I still remember where I was. I was near a movie theater down in Oceanside, near the pier. Some of you, I imagine, have seen it yourself. I was walking with a friend. It was about 8 p.m. It was over summer, and this friend said to me a sentence, though I had been a professing Christian for quite a while, he said, regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration, or new birth, precedes faith. And it just hit me in some way, wait a second. I thought I had faith, and in response, God gave me all the benefits of salvation, including new birth. 
But that is not what we as a Reformed church, and that's not what we would argue the Christian church throughout history, has taught. Where are we getting the idea that it is a work of the Holy Spirit? Look at me at 1 Peter 1. This is one of quite a few passages we'll look at this morning. It's in the nature of catechetical preaching to look at many passages of of the Bible to establish a belief. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's ask the Lord to bless our hearing of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask this morning that exactly as we are discussing, your Holy Spirit would be at work in us. We ask that you would enlighten us, convict us as necessary, encourage us. We ask all of this for the glory of Jesus Christ and in his name. Amen. The word faith is still a part of our culture, in spite of The movement of secularism over time, people still talk about faith. But in some ways, the very concept of faith has itself been secularized. The essential Christian content has been stripped from faith in the minds of many people. And for that reason, when you hear people talk about faith just around town or maybe in shows that you watch or music that you listen to, often... What is being communicated is something very different from the Christian idea of true faith. And you have to bear that in mind. I say that especially to the younger people here. I used an analogy in our high school catechism class last week about how some people, they hear country songs, and then they find out a particular song was not written by somebody with a country background at all. They're not from the South, any of that. It's somebody from, say, Hollywood who has learned that they can tap into a certain market by producing a certain sound. And that's inauthentic, but it attracts. And the song, taken by itself, might even, it sounds pretty good. There's something similar to that that happens culturally as well. People, for a variety of reasons, not even necessarily realizing they do it, cash in on a false version of faith and often peddle it as Christian. This is one of the reasons why there could at times be actually greater danger in watching so-called Christian entertainment than even something explicitly secular. At least with the secular person, you know where they stand. But in the case of some of the movies, for instance, that are marketed to Christians, listen carefully to how they talk about faith. First, in terms of its nature, You could, in many cases, come away with the impression that faith is simply hopefulness rooted in a belief that there are things beyond what we can see. You get what I'm talking about, that regardless of what your religious beliefs are, faith is just, you know, I'm a man of faith, and that person isn't talking about any particular religion. They just believe there are realities that go beyond what we can see, and they trust in a hopeful way that things will work out well for those who are good. That is not the faith described in the Bible. And likewise, the source of that faith is often presented as different. You think it's almost like a personality type. 
or something that you just get from experience. I'm, I'm a person of faith now. But they don't attach it to anything that God has worked in you. I just am that way. And you, you should become one too. That is not the teaching of the Bible. What the Bible teaches is radically different and radically more definite. When the Bible talks about faith, and we've seen this in past sermons, we're not going to spend so much time on this right now, but when the Bible talks about true faith, it is talking about a resting and receiving of all of God's promises held out in Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, and how these are received through faith for us, it has definite content. And as we're going to see this morning, it has a source that is not from your nature. It's not part of this world. It's a miracle. Every genuine Christian has experienced a miracle. I'd believe in God if I saw miracles. They're all around us. Every time we come into a congregational setting, people have experienced a miracle. And that miracle is that the Holy Spirit works faith in us, as we confess. He works faith in us, and he does so through his word. So as we look at this doctrine this morning, we're going to examine it basically under three headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them again. But first, we're going to look at the fact. The fact that faith is something the Holy Spirit works in his people graciously. And then secondly, we're going to look at the means. How does he do it? What is his ordinary way of doing this? And third, we're going to conclude with simply some of the practical implications. And there are some very important implications related to this. So the first two, primarily looking at the doctrine, but then we'll look at how this ties into our life. Before that, though, I want you to recognize something. I appeal to you to consider this. Jesus calls people to believe upon him. And we see throughout the Bible that the apostles and the prophets call people to believe on God. For that reason, it's tempting then to infer that we all have a natural ability to do what we're being asked to do. Because how would God be just in asking people to do what they can't do? That's a common argument against the sovereign grace of God in redemption. If God calls you to do something, you must have the ability to do it by nature. That is not what we find in the Bible. And it's to the scriptures, to the testimony of the word that we have to go. I could wonder whether many of you children have heard a certain story in the Bible, in the Gospels. There was a man that had a withered hand. And Jesus meets him. And the man desires to be healed. And Jesus says, stretch forth your hand. Here the man's being called to do something that by nature he cannot do. He needs a miracle. Christ, in calling him to do it, also has to provide the means to do it. Similarly, Jesus tells a man, take up your bed and walk. That man was paralyzed. The fact that the apostles, prophets, and Jesus Christ call people to have faith does not prove that we, by nature of who we were apart from the Holy Spirit, could have it. Rather, the Bible teaches that faith itself is enabled by, is effectually wrought by the Holy Spirit. That puts us in an uncomfortable position of being utterly dependent upon God for salvation. But I declare to you, that is exactly where you want to be for your salvation. Because then it's not left in jeopardy. It's in good hands, powerful hands, sovereign hands. But this is a fact from Scripture. And we're going to look at, first this, the fact that the Holy Spirit works faith in us by grace. Look at me in 1 Peter again, chapter 1, verse 3. 
first to whom he gives the glory. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Blessed be him. Why? Because he caused us to be born again to a living hope. You immediately have to start doing gymnastics in order to make the new birth something that you cause. Because the analogy of new birth puts it outside of your ability. No one of us conceived ourselves. No one of us brought ourselves forth in birth. Now this phrase, new birth, it occurs several times in the New Testament. Most notably in John chapter 3, where Jesus speaks with a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus wonders how you can become a part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, unless you are born again from above, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus explains further, he says, what is flesh is of the flesh, but what is born of the spirit is spiritual. In other words, there's a contrast being set up here. There is everything that you are according to your original nature that you inherit from your forefathers, and ultimately from Adam. Then there is what the Holy Spirit works in those whom he is saving. And that's why it's called new or being born again, receiving a new nature, a new set of appetites, a new vital principle of life. Now, what was our first set of principles like? The Bible describes it as corrupt. Not just as corrupt, but as dead. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. I want to be clear about something. When the Bible says that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, it was not simply saying that you were guilty. It was saying that you were unable, that you were disposed against, you were disposed to reject God's will for salvation. Imagine an object that is just incredibly heavy beyond all human ability to move against. In fact, recently I saw a video of a a four-wheeling vehicle that began to fall off uh, a rock that it was trying to boulder. And then it started to come back, and a very foolish individual thought that he, by his normal human strength, was going to stop or slow down the very expensive vehicle. Of course, it just threw him. He lived. He's fine. But here he made a mistake in thinking that he could stop this immensely heavy object from going where it would naturally go. We can't think of God as preventing people who want to be saved from being saved. It's the total opposite. We have immense inertia towards salvation and immense momentum towards damnation. That's the description of scripture about us. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they seem like foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is, apart from the Holy Spirit, it wouldn't make sense, and think about that for a moment. Things like the fact that your coming to faith in Christ means a lifetime of letting go of your idols. That seems like foolishness. Now, everybody's willing to give up certain idols, It's the ones very dear to our hearts where we start to discover, I don't want salvation if I have to let go of that. The natural person will not let go of all. They'll let go of some because they see it as conditional. They're buying salvation morally. Or they hear that salvation is truly on the basis of grace alone and that 
runs against what makes sense. We wouldn't want to entrust ourselves to God. In fact, we're disposed to be suspicious that he hates us and will kill us. How can I trust him alone? The message of the scripture is the total opposite. He's more gracious than you can possibly imagine. But he will only have you through grace alone. Or the message of the cross just seems like utter foolishness. How can the death of a human being thousands of years ago save me? And thus, faith hinges upon a spiritual work. Now, what is that spiritual work? It's called new birth because it is a good analogy. When you were formed in your mother's womb, a certain nature was being put together, certain appetites common to human beings. But not only was that true physically, but also you inherited a spiritual nature. And in the new birth, the Holy Spirit brings both spiritual life, an organic principle, an actual vitality, but also a set of affections, desires, inclinations. There are imperfect analogies, of course. Think of the fact that sea turtles, who have never been to their birthplace, yet can or never known the path back to their birthplace, find it. God has made creatures with certain instincts, inborn in. The instinct that the Holy Spirit works in the believer, if I can use that word, is one to recline upon the Lord alone. And that's totally opposite to what is natural to us. And it is a miracle of mercy. Look with me again at our text, verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Or Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, simply at this point, appreciate something. This doesn't mean that anyone should put off placing faith in Christ because they say, well, the Bible says I can't. That'd be like the man to whom Jesus said, take up your bed and walk, saying, I can't. The paradox of the call is that those who desire to come may come. And they find in coming that God enabled it. And so you don't wait, you just come. But for those who have believed, that means that your salvation is only to the glory of God. And it means that you can trust him. If he began the good work in you, then you can trust him to finish it. Maybe this morning you are so terrified, you are not going to make it. You are going to fall away. If the Lord depended upon something that came from your nature, I would fall away, and you would fall away, and we would all fall away. But the great glory of this miracle coming from the Lord is that it assures us that he will keep us to the end. You see that even in this epistle here, where Peter says, you are being guarded for an inheritance incorruptible. Being guarded, being kept by the Lord. And so faith is worked by grace. Now, how does God work it in us? I ask you, children, how does God bring about that faith? How do you answer somebody? They say, well, why do some people have faith? Ultimately, our basic answer would be the Holy Spirit works it in us. But practically, God uses something. He uses the preaching of the gospel. See what it says, or rather, I just draw your attention to How to Bring Catechism, question 65 again. The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel. That's what we confess, but it's also what we see in this passage. Look with me down a little bit further. This is our second division, by the way, in terms of the means. Look with me at verse 23. 
Verse 23, there Peter says that you have been born again, note these words, through the living and abiding word of God. And verse 25, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So the word that brought about your conversion, your regeneration, your new birth, wasn't just some amorphous, floating, cloud-like word that came in a, uh, just a movement in your heart. It had actual content that was, they say, preached to you, the good news. The words good news here, it's actually one word in Greek. It occurs over 91 times in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's a very specific term as it's used in the Bible. The good news here has to do with the declaration, the proclamation of everything associated with Jesus' coming. Why, not just that he lived a perfect human life, but why he lived a perfect life. In order that he might present his life in the place of sinners. His obedience becomes your obedience through faith. The declaration of his death, not just that he died, but that he died a substitutionary death. That all who trust in him, you died with him. I have been crucified with Christ, says Paul. The fact that he was raised, and not just that he was raised, but the significance of resurrection has to be declared. That he ever lives to intercede for us, to send forth the Holy Spirit to do this work. That his resurrection is the proof of who he is. It's in the declaration of these things that the Holy Spirit works. Now, how did he work in them? Here, Peter says that it was preached to these people. We don't know if it was Peter himself who did the preaching. It may have been missionaries who were sent out for that purpose. We find that in Acts. Oftentimes people are set aside because they have specific gifts to preach. But it could have just been some person in the church who shared the gospel with these people and they came to faith. Here together with me, I don't ask you to turn, it's very brief. But there's an example of lay witnessing. When I say lay witnessing, I just mean anybody doing it. In Acts 8 verse 40, it says... As Philip passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Philip was a deacon. You can find that in Acts 6. He's a deacon. He was not appointed as a minister of the word. He's not a pastor. He's not an evangelist. But all of God's people, to the extent that they are equipped by the Lord, have opportunities to proclaim. When it says he preached the gospel to all the towns, you shouldn't then infer from that that he's necessarily going into a synagogue and giving a sermon. Because the actual word here is just uh, declaration, declaring, proclaiming the good news. I want to be clear about something. God is not dependent upon human instruments. He's not constrained by them. Sometimes there are questions when we talk about this, that God uses the word to bring people to faith, to salvation. What about people who pass away in infancy? What about people who have certain mental and physical disabilities that make it impossible for them to hear the gospel? Extraordinary things belong to the Lord. He has given us, he has revealed things to us for us to do and to act upon. But taking the extraordinary circumstance is not the way that you form a plan for missions and evangelism and outreach. God calls us to live according to what he has revealed. And what he has revealed is that he has chosen to use his word. Why does he do that? Hear these words in 1 Corinthians 1. 
1 Corinthians 1.21. Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The world has its own set of wisdom, what seems wise, what seems like it should lead to salvation. God was pleased to use what seems foolish to bring about salvation. So when we say that God works through the preaching of the word to bring about salvation, it's not because ministers are so great. It's not at the end of the day because somebody is so rhetorically powerful that they know how to speak or or how to teach. It's faithfulness to the message and that God exalts his power in the midst of our weakness. The main point here is not who does the preaching per se, but the fact that it's inseparable from the word. I invite you to turn and look with me somewhere. Romans 10. Romans 10 is an important passage for what it declares about the preaching of the gospel. Because in every generation, every generation, there is the temptation to mistake the good news of Christ in the most broad sense for the declaration of the gospel as relates to salvation. It is good news related to Jesus Christ that the world is going to be transformed, that sin will be done away with, that Christ will return that Christians are called to do good in the world. Those are all parts, outflowings of the good news. But the actual means of people coming to salvation is the declaration of who Christ is, what he has done. And the temptation is to neglect the declaration of the gospel and to give ourselves to something else. Romans 10, verse 14 and following. Look at me there. They're speaking about people who don't yet know God. How then will they call on him in whom they have not yet believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing, hearing comes through the word of Christ. But how will people hear the word unless God's people are sent and they actually declare it? There's a formal sending, of course. We send forth dedicated vocational missionaries. But there's another sense in which we are all sent, right? Go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey whatsoever I have commanded. That's what Jesus says. Making disciples and baptizing them presupposes that they convert to the faith, that they've heard the gospel. And we are all sent forth to declare that word. And so it's through the hearing of the word that God's elect are brought to faith. Now, as far as this main heading goes, one last idea here. How does he actually do it through the word? How does he do it? There are basically three steps And you should bear this in mind both for what you are praying for God to do in people and perhaps what you are asking him to do in you. The first thing the Holy Spirit does through the word is apply the law inwardly, deeply. He takes the law of God, the moral commands of God, 
And it's like taking a plow and putting it through a field and cutting a groove and turning up stones. The Holy Spirit shows us our deep sinfulness. Until a person senses that they are deeply sinful, sinful so far that they could never be saved by the good they attempt to do, they simply will not depend upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation. So the first thing he does is apply the law. Paul says that when the law came, sin revived and he died. He came to realize, I am a sinner. I'm not just a person who commits XYZ sin. I am a sinner. And so the Holy Spirit does that first. He pricks us in our hearts, as it says in Acts 2. Second, he enlightens you to perceive the wisdom of the cross. And it may be this morning that somebody that you know finds the cross just to be foolish, but you have to depend upon the Holy Spirit to work that in them. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But a little bit later, the very next chapter, 2 verse 12, he says, but we who believe have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, in order that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In other words, the wisdom comes from from God. The Lord sweetly inclines and transforms our wisdom, our reason from within. Last, he sanctifies our affections and desires. Imagine leading, say, a cat to a mud pit cat's not going to want to get in the mud pit. It's a cat. They, they, in a way that some animals are the complete opposite, they strive after the appearance of cleanliness. They don't want to go in. But if you imagine God were to transform a cat, he changed water into wine. Imagine he changed a cat into swine. And now it has a new nature. It has a new set of dispositions, of affections. Then it desires to go into the mud. Even so, Titus 3 verse 5 says that God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He transforms us so that regeneration logically, not necessarily in time, but logically precedes faith. What are the implications of this? There are many, but by way of conclusion, I simply want to lay three before you. This doctrine, this is one of those, you know, meat and potatoes of being a Reformed Christian doctrines. But we have to be able to give an account. Why does this matter? The first of this When you worship the Lord, God desires the glory of what he has done. Your everlasting salvation depended upon this. This is, in a manner of speaking, one of the gifts out of which every other gift is going to flow. Every bit of hope that you have, that you have known him, that you love him, that you'll be with him, is rooted in something you could not do for yourself. And it's out of that that he desires glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
And this is one of the dangers that we look at other people who have not yet come to believe and we have contempt for them. Like it should be so obvious. Or that they have all the facts. Why don't they have faith? They are responsible for their unbelief because it is sinful. But we have to beware any feeling that we were different. We are not different. If God did not work a miracle in you, you'd be like the person who couldn't take up the bed. How many didn't? How many weren't healed by Jesus? 1 Corinthians 1.28 says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. If the Lord began the work in you, you can trust him to complete it. If the Lord began the work in you, it must have been based on a love that was not rooted in yourself. Concerning others who have not yet believed, I wish to lay before you another implication. Recognize the importance of the proclamation of the gospel. God has elected a number, he knows, of people who will come to faith. And apart from the declaration, those people will not come to faith. He has ordained the two together. And he has ordained that you should be involved in declaring it. He has called us to act and not to act without the declaration of the word. When we think of the mission of the church, there is a broader mission and a more narrow mission. God called us to make disciples of all the world, obeying everything Jesus taught us. And that's everything in the Old and New Testament. And Christian Doctrine in the Old and New Testament has implications for governance, parenthood, ecology. It has implications for how you relate to fellow employees. Everything, every aspect of life has implications. The broader mission is Christians living out of that obedience and the effect that it has upon the world. But that's like the tire. The declaration of who Jesus Christ is and the call to believe upon him, that is the rim. That is the hub. That is the axle on which everything else turns. If you lose that, the whole thing is deflated. Because it's no longer out of grace and gratitude. It's a dead message to be better people. The world doesn't need Christians to help us declare just be better people. The world has that message. The world needs you in your vocation. And your principal mission field is probably whatever vocation you're in. That vocation at this stage of your life might be in the home. That vocation at this stage of your life might be in school. That vocation might be at this stage of your life in retirement. Everybody's in these different places, but that's probably your primary missionary field. And there needs to be tread on that tire. There needs to be a holy life reflecting all the will of the Lord. But you need to, at the same time, be ready to give an account for the gospel. And the Lord then works through this, even more than the declaration of the gospel is a reliance upon the Holy Spirit. One man plants, another man waters, but the Lord gives the increase. Which means that as you do this, don't look to yourself. Believe that God in his time will use it, and you may be surprised. 
the simple declaration of what we've received, that God will use it. Finally, I wish to address any who lack this sense of faith. Some of us here will identify with you if you feel like you're stuck. You may feel like you're stuck because the Bible says that you, by your own nature, can't believe. So how do you believe? But the Bible itself tells you what to do. Put yourself in the path of the word. God will work through the word. What does the word say? The word says in Romans 10 verse 8, the word of the gospel is near to you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Don't wait for the miracle. Experience the miracle. And the miracle will feel like just taking up your bed and walking. It will feel like just deciding, God isn't lying. He really will receive me. Whoever believes shall be saved. It is a wonder when you have eyes to see it that there is a miracle happening all around us all the time. But it's not a miracle that the world sees. It's one for which we should give thanks to the Lord. Let's ask him even now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for working through it to bless us. We ask on behalf of any who have not yet come to know you that you would please work in them sincere contrition over sin, a longing to know you and to discover the fountain of all good throughout the whole universe has drawn near to us and receives us. We pray that you would cause Christ to be great in our hearts, that you would send us out boasting in your mercy and believing that you will perform your supernatural work. Forgive us for how little we have often trusted you to work beyond our own limited abilities. Increase our faith, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.